Today we conclude our summer sermon series on the ABCs of faith with a topic that means everything to some but is nonsense to others, a single belief that can change the entirety of one's Christianity, the second coming of Christ. We all know that our faith began some 2,000 years ago with Jesus' first coming, but many believe that Jesus will come back, bringing an end to our faith and to the entire world. Today we look at this idea, the second coming, and ask, what about us? What do we believe? A recent episode of a television show called Pose includes a second coming of its own that may help us interrogate our beliefs. At the beginning of the episode, a main character named Candy is unexpectedly and brutally murdered. This tragedy comes with shock and surprise, as Candy was ambitious and had recently discovered new hopes for her own future. Posed as a fictional drama about people in an actual underground community in the late 80s and 90s in New York City. This culture is largely made up of LGBTQ, African American, and Latino folk, many of whom had been kicked out of their own families and lived in houses known as chosen families. They gathered each week at parties called balls, in which people competed in dancing and modeling competitions. Pose is a brilliant and funny and jubilous and heartbreaking show in which a funeral is not abnormal or unusual, as many of the characters were losing friends and family to the AIDS crisis. But this funeral is different. Candy's death is entirely unexpected, and she was a unique character among the rest. She was one of my favorites, funny and fabulous and fierce, but she wasn't too likable of a person. She wasn't a good model, was a terrible dancer, and was quick to anger and drama, always finding herself on someone's bad side. During her funeral, though, Candy has a second coming. It begins with a man named Praytel, the main MC in the show. Praytel was always unusually difficult on Candy. He never hesitated to call her out for a bad performance, oftentimes taking it too far and he withheld from Candy the normal grace and joy he gave others. Praytel is sitting in a pew, much like you are today, meditating and mourning, when suddenly Candy comes and takes a seat next to him. They have a brief conversation, one may be imagined but nevertheless real, in which Candy does not mince her words. She asks him why he was always so hard on her, and he breaks down, confessing to her and to himself, saying, I didn't want to look at you. You are unapologetic. You are all the things I try to hide about myself. Candy extends grace, even joking that a woman's got to forgive, otherwise her complexion gets all hazy. And Praytel finds reconciliation, although he had done wrong by Candy. Candy's second coming continues with others. When she comes to her friend and sister, Angel, Angel is crying over Candy's casket, saying, it could have been me. Why was it you and not me? She gets it. She had always seen and loved Candy, and Candy places her hand on Angel's shoulder and says simply, you did right by me, sister. 
As I watched this episode, I couldn't help but think that somehow Candy was kind of like Jesus. Though their lives were pretty different in many ways, they both were innocent victims of a brutal murder, and both, in their own ways, come back, bringing with them conviction or peace to those left with a world utterly shocked and changed. In making this comparison, though, between Candy and Jesus, I'm reminded of the Christian culture I grew up in and how uncomfortable many from my childhood would be with me likening such an enigmatic transgender woman from urban New York City to Jesus Christ. I have a lot of love for the church I grew up in. They taught me that most of all our faith is about loving God and loving others, but sometimes other teachings get thrown into the mix. I was in seventh grade at my church's private day school when we watched a movie called Left Behind in my Bible class. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Left Behind, but it was a popular movie and book series from the late 90s and early 2000s that told a fictional story of Jesus coming back. It had such a cultural impact that, to many, it represented what Christians do or at least are supposed to believe about God, about Jesus' second coming, and even the end of the entire world. The franchise, including its 16 books and four movies, including a 2014 reboot with Nicolas Cage, if you're curious, focuses on the Chicago-based pilot named Ray Steele. At the beginning, Ray isn't spiritual or religious, but his wife Irene and their younger son are. They go to church each week and often talk about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. One night, Ray is flying an overnight flight and he suddenly hears screams coming from the cabin behind him. People begin to wake up and realize that some people are missing. Family, friends, and fellow passengers panic because people who were sitting right next to them have suddenly vanished, leaving behind clothes and wallets and jewelry, but no body. Ray lands and finds that the earth is in panic as millions have vanished worldwide. He reunites after some trouble with his teenage daughter, who tells him that his wife and son were among those who were vanished. It doesn't take long. Ray puts two and two together and realizes that his wife, Irene, had said something about this, had said this was coming. One day, she knew that Jesus would come back, and then it would begin with this unexpected event called the rapture, based on scriptures like the one Russell read earlier. All of the true Christians on earth would be taken into heaven, and others would be left, to hide, left behind to endure a dystopian world of plague and famine and disease and disaster. The series content, continues to tell how Ray and the others left behind join together to share the truth about what's happening and about what's to come. But honestly, I don't remember much beyond that first film, especially the shocking scene of people just vanishing, from passengers in a plane to people driving their cars, from friends embracing another to babies in their mother's arms. Even in its heyday, Christians knew that Left Behind exaggerated or made up many of the elements, but many saw this fictionalized story as containing some truth. Someday the rapture would happen, and Jesus' second coming would begin the end of the world. But I was always a little bit confused. Many in my life said that something like this would happen, if not one day soon, then eventually. But for the most part, their lives looked normal. 
They were in many ways quintessential Americans, good people doing good things, living in good homes, with good jobs and good families, securing good futures for their children. But nowhere other than in brief Sunday morning conversations did their lives hint towards the urgency that this faith, this belief demanded. What about us? Chances are that we are here this morning with some desire to do good things or be good people, looking to Jesus' first coming to give us guidance on the good path. But do we think Jesus is coming back, coming again, like left-behind style, rapture and all? Or do we believe that that's just all some nonsense? I mean, there's plenty in the Bible about something like this happening. Russell read it earlier in Matthew 24, but it's also elsewhere. In John 14, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and will take you to myself. Acts 1 says that Jesus, who has been taken up into heaven, will come the same way he went. And 1 Thessalonians says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven and that we will be caught up in the clouds together to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be there with the Lord forever. I could continue. There are dozens of such verses. Maybe we take them literally. Or maybe we dismiss it all, even these parts of the Bible, as some ancient naivety that we, modern and educated people, know better than to believe. Maybe we just focus on the one time Jesus did come and what that teaches us about God and how we are to live. But what if it's neither of these? What if we don't have to choose between the second coming of left behind and no second coming at all? What if instead the second coming has been happening all along? When we turn the page from today's scripture, we find a parable in Matthew 25 that begins with the second coming. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will say to the righteous, Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. But to the accursed, he will say, depart, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. All will ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. This parable concludes two chapters in which Jesus talks a lot about his coming again and the end of the world. How does this and its truth about Christ, that whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me, color our belief about the second coming? I think it invites us to see the unexpected second coming, not as a prediction about something for which we as Christians have been waiting for 2,000 years, but instead as a lens through which we can better see what God is doing now 
and what God has been doing since Christ's resurrection. You know, the second coming I was taught to believe in and the lack of urgency in the people who taught me its way is actually understandable. While the belief that Jesus may come back at any moment, maybe right now, stealing away Christians into paradise while everything falls to hell on earth is scary, it's comfortable, so long as you're sure that you'll be raptured. You may feel the desire to spread the word to others, making sure that they can get their ticket on the rapture train before it's too late, but you know that you can't win everyone, so you begin to find peace and complacency, and you go about your life. The fact that it may all end unexpectedly in any moment is scary, but not uncomfortable. To me, though, thinking about the second coming as an ongoing reality is even scarier because it's not something so easily avoidable. You can't just find security in prayer or in belief or in where you go to church to know that you won't face confrontation and conviction when Christ comes back. Indeed, the second coming, I think, is more like the unexpected death of a friend. It affects us all, each in its own way, and it's something we can ignore and repress, or it's something that can transform us. In his book, Raising Abel, author James Allison illustrates this poignantly. He brings up the AIDS crisis and the way many talked about the HIV virus as God's punishment on immoral behavior. He says, along with this attitude that AIDS is God's punishment, went another which suggested that since these people deserve what has befallen them, it's not worth the bother of doing anything to alleviate the problem. And here's the irony of the thing. God's judgment is very real and very terrible, but it's working as the inverse of what such people imagine. By separating ourselves from our sisters and brothers in need, alleging reasons of religion to boot, we run risk of grave eternal fire because God's judgment arrives as the clamor of the neighbor in need. I think the AIDS might be interpreted as a judgment of God, but it works as a question a catastrophe has occurred. Are you prepared to ignore the judgment of this world and stretch a hand out towards those who are on their way out of existence? Or are you separating yourself into goathood, thinking yourself a sheep? All around us are situations that come unexpectedly, painful, drastic, destructive situations like the AIDS crisis or like instances of hatred and homelessness and poverty. Such things are not God's judgment on those who suffer, but instead our judgment on those who watch and must respond. What will our judgment be? After Candy's funeral, the show pose, Praytel and Angel and the others go back to their lives. They go back to their families and their balls and their competitions, but they're each a bit more awake to the reality and the urgency that they live in. At any moment, they may lose a friend. At any moment, they may find a neighbor in need. Their world has changed, and they are transformed from those like Praytel, who know now how to be better, to those like Angel, who find fresh peace and resolve in Candy's words, you did right by me. Are we doing right by Christ? 
In our scripture today, Jesus says that as the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying until Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. Such will be the second coming. Now, Jesus didn't condemn the eating and drinking and marrying. He condemned the lack of watchfulness. So we go about our lives as we work and run errands, as we eat with family and drink with friends, as we go to the doctor and shop at our stores, are we staying awake? Are we ready for the unexpected coming of Christ and our neighbor in need? Indeed, Christ is coming back all around us. What words do we hear from those through whom Christ is coming again? Do we hear convicting questions about why we did not extend grace? Do we fail to see that as we do it to the least of these, we do it to Christ? Or are we awake, urgent, and ready? When we pass by the person living off Ward Parkway in the pavilion off the side of the road, do we hear Christ say, you did right by me? When we read articles about children seeking refuge but finding abuse at our own border, do we hear Christ say, you did right by me? Or when we read statistics about poverty in our own country, that more than 40 million Americans subsist below the poverty line, that one in five kids in our country live in poverty, do we hear a chorus of conviction, or do we hear those words, you did right by me? Christ comes again, not to rescue us because of our good beliefs or proper behavior, but to end the world as we know it, to end a world where we can live in total comfort and rest and complacency as if nothing is wrong around us. Christ comes again to call us to action, not to hate our power or privilege, but to use it to embody the prayer we pray each week that it may be on earth as it is in heaven. We can't do it all. We can't save it all. But we can live in a way that's awake and watchful for opportunities as they come. Will we live with the urgency to which we are called, reckoning with the reality that those who are hungry and thirsty and in need of welcome and clothing, that they're Christ coming again? May we live in a way that Christ's voice can come through those neighbors in need and tell us the words our souls should long to hear. You did right by me.